Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships. Um, as many of us are getting used to opening up our lives again in the middle of a pandemic, we might start to feel different kinds of feelings and thoughts about how safe and comfortable we might feel. Being at the pub, cafe, theatre, cinema, meetings, conferences or protests now has a very different set of concerns or anxieties for many of us. Also over the last couple of years, the protests around the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Sarah Everard and also the Kill the Bill protests have been a reminder to us that our capacity to feel safe and comfortable in public spaces has been extremely unfairly distributed in the modern era. And furthermore, we maybe now have a greater awareness of how people's experiences of systemic oppression might show up in people's bodies in the context of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So I thought it would be timely to talk about the body and to invite Kim Lalia onto the show to talk about her work as a therapist, particularly somatic therapy, and for us to learn more about how we might connect with our bodies and whether this can be a necessary part of a broader politics of solidarity too. Welcome to the show, Kim. Hi, Justin. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back, I should say, because we recorded an episode uh, with Meg John. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> this was the only conversation. Well, there was one other, actually, that I did with Meg John that went all wrong as well. Uh, I recorded, we recorded the conversation. It was a really great chat about um, somatic therapy. And then uh, the SD card onto which I recorded, basically, whenever I insert it into my computer, it looks like it's going to blow up. Something <laughs> went wrong. Sounds I'm dangerous. I'm not saying it was... Yeah, it wasn't. I don't think our conversation was even that spicy. I don't no. think you know. I don't. It's it was you know gentle. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm absolutely thrilled that you could come back on and chat with me uh, about a lot of this stuff. So um, thank you so much. So uh, again, a lot of my listeners are quite interested when I have guests on about how they got into their line of work and yeah. stuff. So could you tell us a little bit? about yourself and how you got into therapy generally, maybe something about your background and what you do at the moment. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I am a psychotherapist. I use an integrative model in my work and I'm also a somatic experiencing practitioner as well. And I got into therapy um, in a really indirect way, actually. I used to run a weekly book club where we read lots of vulnerable stories and ended up sharing our own. And that's where I realised that I really loved, you know, hearing stories, working with people, um, working with vulnerability. And I ended up doing more group work. So holding more, you know, group spaces, um, evening sessions, um, weekend sessions. And then I ended up training in facilitation and then, you know, more embodiment training, more coaching. And then I sort of transitioned from group work to one-on-one work and then ended up training in psychotherapy as well. So it's been a really gradual process and definitely not something I would have imagined when I first started, Mm. you know, sitting with cake and coffee, reading books, discussing them. I never thought I'd end up, you know, in a therapy room um, working with trauma. So that's life. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds so interesting. in this kind of in this kind of broader like field of things to do with culture sex relationships people's mm-hmm. um like professional backgrounds in this are so varied and that's so um that's such an interesting way in and also it's a nice story because you allowed yourself to become you know it's like yeah. i think that's how a lot of people kind of people often find themselves in this kind of work don't they yeah and it is really a vocation as well it, mm. it's something that is really passion-led so you know i've had to take some time to learn and grow myself personally and professionally 
So that's how I ended up, um, you know, being here. And thinking about the body, I initially realised that embodiment existed when I um, I was at a dance class. And for the first three months, I used to cry at the end of every class. And I had no idea why I felt emotional. And wow. in the end, I ended up realising that actually I was releasing a, a lot of things unconsciously through movement. And that's mm-hmm. when, you know the penny dropped around the body being a really important part of healing and I then took that into my work. That's so interesting. Um, Mm. I know that also people experience that actually around sex as well don't they that sometimes things like orgasms can be a release but also people love um, people find um, uh, often find uh, exercise generally as as being incredibly emotionally uh, um, transformative and I think that um, mm. one of the things that I think we've, we've covered on the podcast a bit but we'll go into more detail today is that there is this false dichotomy between the mind and the body isn't there that um, mm-hmm. and that actually you know the uh, on your bingo cards you can check off so, uh, biopsychosocial now dear listener um, <laughs> it's biopsychosocial isn't it Kim mm-hmm. so you know the, the the body is the mind and the mind is the body and yeah mind is the body they and they they um they have it's like a constant feedback loop and so changing one thing like dancing Mm -hmm. then suddenly reveals a lot of other things that have been yeah that are potential to be going on definitely and in the moment you know you can be upset and have no idea why and that's okay you won't necessarily know if something's being released from the body you might not be able to track it back to a particular situation Mm. But it just is. But it is just a feeling that is happening. Yeah, and, and, and it's okay. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's going to be so interesting. Okay, <laughs> so um, so we're kind of getting into the field of like talking about um, somatic experiencing therapy, aren't we? So mm-hmm. could you give us a give us a bit of uh, detail about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So somatic therapy is a really broad field and there are mm. probably hundreds of different somatic therapies and different mo- modalities within this really big umbrella. Um, mm-hmm. So my particular orientation is around embodiment and somatic experiencing and trauma. But there are you know, lots of different ways of working with the body as well, you know, beyond that. So really, we're, we're talking about any approach that is grounded in the mind body connection. And, and it's a permission to uh, bring your body to therapy, to, right. you know, not just bring your head. There's this kind of idea that we're, you know, talking heads on a stick. And then when we go to therapy, we're really pr- highlighting the mind. But actually, the body is always with us. And when we're in therapy, you know, our body is also part of that process. So somatic therapy is acknowledging that in lots of different ways. And it's also acknowledging that trauma is in our nervous system. It's in the body, it's in our physiology. So that, um, you know, we can therapeutically release the charge that's being created by trauma and hopefully, you know, rewire our kind of processing around it as well. So it's moving from really focusing on the story to focusing on the sensations, the felt senses and the physiology. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and it feels like it is that sense of bringing your whole self and bringing all of the, I guess, all of the potential for um, information and yeah. uh, about what's going on for you. Um, I know certainly during my, I've done a lot of, 
the kind of therapy that I guess you were talking about, the kind of the uh, that being totally about the mind rather mm. than the body. And I think that is a lot of people's experiences, and that's you know, and that can be uh, really useful. But for things like um, trauma and stress generally, the somatic approach is, uh, it seems to me to be really quite a, a vital part of the experience to actually to know what's going on in the body right there and then, and to allow for the body to be there. It sounds like potentially really, um, really. A, a, possibly transformative and rewarding yeah absolutely it, it's also grounded in intergenerational wisdom as well as trauma mm. so we're holding in ourselves you know hundreds of thousands millions of years of evolution mm. and it's there's some wisdom in that and there's some wisdom in our survival as well the fact that we're even here today to to be experiencing you know trauma in itself is signaling that there's an element of survival which is really positive so we can really tap into that potential as part of somatic therapy maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, about the uh, the nervous system here so we're talking about the autonomous nervous system aren't we and mm-hmm. the and the responses that uh, so am i right in thinking that so we're talking here about the um, the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system and, and, and yeah. how they relate through trauma. So Yeah, definitely. The, and and how yeah. we might experience, you know, fight, flight, freeze, mm-hmm. which is really common, especially in a kind of Western context where it's really taboo to be angry. You know, many people either try to run away or they might freeze mm-hmm. internally, emotionally. And then there's also the fawn response as well, mm. that appease where actually befriending the the threat, the attacker, is part of survival. So that really socialized, more evolved um, you know, process of 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 basically surviving kicks in. Um and then there's, you know, flop, which is basically collapse. Um, And these are really complex responses that often arise in, you know, less than a second. So we're really working with parts of our our body and our physiology that are so fast and so instinctual Mm. and and that they're really difficult to understand cognitively. You know, people don't necessarily understand why they have an argument and then want to run out the door. Or if they right. maybe leave the room mentally, disassociate, you know, that's also part of the flight response. Hmm. Yeah, there are so many of them, aren't there? Um, and I think people just uh, think that fight is literally, hmm. um, am I feeling angry and do I want to punch someone? Right. Exactly. But, you know, these can manifest themselves in many, many different ways that we might be completely unaware of. Yeah, and the, and the fight response can be simply pushing back, saying yeah. no. And it, you know, it doesn't have to involve harming anyone. Sure. And so that is, but it, it, but it's okay for the body to react in this way, isn't it? Because the body is just keeping us safe. That's what. Yeah, the, the, the body the is body keeping does. us alive. The body yeah. is is basically focused on us surviving. That's it. Mm. It doesn't really have any other agenda. So it's really important for us to understand that these are survival mechanisms, and that you know they're absolutely okay, and we all have them. You know, across. Mm gender sexual orientation um class all dimensions of difference we all have this thing in common which is that we've got a nervous system yeah and the the so the the thing which uh, i guess uh, regulates the sympathetic nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system isn't it so yeah absolutely. At, my, at my website when i talk about this i kind of um 
Actually, no, I read about this in Dean Burnett's book, The Idiot Brain. It's like uh, if you imagine, he says that if you imagine a, a a sitcom where there's a character who's really uptight and as soon as anything happens, jumps up and down on the sofa and yells, mm. react, react, react. Mm-hmm. And the that's the sympathetic nervous system. But the parasympathetic nervous system is the more chill one who yeah. makes a cup of tea and puts a blanket around them yeah. and says it's all going to be okay. And if... Uh, am I right in thinking that if we if, if we don't if we aren't given the opportunity or afforded the allowances of allowing the parasympathetic nervous system to do its job yeah. to calm us down, then this can really then the, that's where the stress starts to really sit in the body and become more complex and more long term, doesn't it? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, then you you're in a situation where activation builds up more and more, and it's really difficult to be in a place of regulation and safety. And you know, when we think about PTSD or CPTSD or you know phobias, for example, other types of trauma, sexual violence, all all these things create a sense of kind of permanent lack of safety in the body and and then it becomes you know quite chronic so the yeah. work is really about starting to settle the nervous system before anything else is done right so really so, you know doing that parasympathetic work mm-hmm. of safety activation um social connection as well you know the polyvagal aspects right so um so this is where the somatic therapy comes in because it's potential. If you're, if someone is going to sit in therapy and they're constantly in react mode, mm-hmm. <laughs> then you know no kind of therapy is going to be, I guess, very helpful if if they if they're not able to kind of sit with what's going on. So mm-hmm. perhaps it might be useful to give us some examples of the kinds of practices that somatic therapy kind of uses and involves, particularly the kind that you use, because I know that there are lots of different kinds, yeah. aren't there? But yeah. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I use a, a simple awareness of the body, awareness of posture, hmm. noticing if, you know, the body starts to contract or is moving in a particular way. And I also use grounding techniques for stabilization. So sometimes people arrive, you know, in the therapy room and they're really agitated. They might be triggered by something or they might have not slept because of, you know, flashbacks, nightmares. And it's important to create that grounding before, you know, any, as you said, any work can really take place. And also connected to that grounding is also noticing the breath, noticing how the breath is moving in the body, connecting to the breath as something that we can connect to anywhere, but particularly in the therapeutic context. Um, There's also encouraging the body to move because sometimes, you know, the freeze response is creating that lack of range of movement. It's really limiting movement. So encouraging a very slow, mindful, gentle movement that can create a sense of reprocessing is is also part of you know how I work in my practice and being aware if you know moving creates a particular emotion or sensation that could be linked to a memory or it could be completely random Mm. Um, and some people use touch as well in somatic Mm -hmm. therapy so my practice is online I don't use touch obviously um, Mm -hmm. but it is used by some people and it's really important to be aware of consent and the power differential in the therapy room as well as trauma and what might happen if you you know re-traumatize someone Hmm. yeah definitely 
Um, I was wondering whether I remember we we did this on the on the ill-fated episode that that nearly mm-hmm, killed sure. my computer. I'm, honestly, it wasn't your fault. <laughs> sure. It's the it's the SD card. <laughs> um, uh, I wonder whether might it might now be perhaps we might guide the listener through um, what a bit of guided breathing or grounding might feel like. Is that would that be possible? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to start by showing what an orientation looks like and the Mm -hmm. reason why we we need to orientate ourselves is because when when there's a trauma response our gaze can be really focused on one particular threat and we can lose uh, the sense of where we are in space so when we Mm -hmm. orientate we kind of regain that sense and it, it really does create that safety in the body to know where we are and to know to really be able to check that our environment is safe as well Mm. so we can start with that um Mm -hmm. if it's safe to do so for those who are listening obviously you know please don't do this if it's not safe um place your feet on the ground both feet and take a moment to look around the room and really notice what you can see in your room noticing the colors Noticing the textures. And if you've got a window, looking out of your window. And seeing if you can spot the furthest point in the distance. So it might be looking into the sky or looking at a building. And taking some easy breaths. And connecting to that sense of stability. Feeling your feet on the ground. Feeling your body on a chair or on a sofa. And continuing to look with the intention of being curious. So that's orientation. Oh, I'm feeling so relaxed. (laughs) (laughs) It is amazing how, I mean, just even, I guess, just the the daily stresses, the stresses Mm. of, of work, you know, even just the stress, the, the mild stress of me, you know, um, mm-hmm. writing an introduction for this and uh, getting the Zoom working and having a thing recording. Even that can just, can really, I'm just noticing my shoulders feel much lighter now. I feel like much heavier in my chair, my feet feeling on the floor feel, like even just that small thing is I just found really, really helpful. Um, mm. and, yeah. and that's just- and, and that's actually a big thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I guess this is the, so this is the thing that I mean we could just kind of build these things in throughout our day too. I mean I, I know my um my yoga teacher um always encouraged this kind of thing as well and anyone kind of mm-hmm. practicing mindfulness might um uh might be able to to kind of do this on in in like a kind of a low key low level way uh, yeah. throughout the day. And it it only takes a, it only takes a couple of, you know, 
minutes to to really orientate and especially if we're in a new environment it's really important to signal to the body that it's safe and to quickly look around isn't you know it's not a big thing you don't have to be sitting on a you know cushion meditating with your eyes closed this is a really practical way of settling and I suppose that, you know, these are the kinds of practices that you would begin with in somatic therapy. But but I guess it's like an invitation to ask, what else can the body do, isn't it? Yeah. So it is to say, well, if you can plant your feet on the floor and look around, it's an invitation to, it's not saying, okay, we're going to immediately get rid of any trauma response you're feeling right now. But it's it's an opportunity to think, well, what is going on? What, what are the sensations can I bring in? What? just what does it feel like for my heartbeat to be ever so slightly more regulated what does it feel like to feel just one percent more relaxed in my body and then where is my body and then what might happen next isn't it yeah it's definitely a process and Mm. creating that invitation for safety and security ideally multiple times a day is part of that Mm. long-term process of what we mean by trauma healing or trauma Mm. processing I've also got another technique that I can share if that would be helpful. Okay, great. So this is a centering technique by Wendy Palmer. And it's a two breath technique. So it's really quick and you do it with your eyes open. Okay. And taking a breath in, breathing in through the nose, imagining that your neck is lengthening and breathing out through the mouth, imagining that there are roots going into the ground from your feet. Second breath, breathing in, looking into all four corners of the room, moving the neck and head, and breathing out, imagining something or someone who makes you smile. I love it. (laughs) I love the thing about roots as well. I might talk about that later. But that's really nice. Mm -hmm. I'm now smiling. And that's kind of changed Mm -hmm. the, um, that's just kind of changed some of my, just how how some muscles are feeling in my face. And it's slightly loosened the Mm -hmm. little tension I had in my jaw. Uh, And I feel even Mm. a little bit more heavy and I feel like my feet are even more kind of planted. Can you come on every week, Mm -hmm. Kim? Like, let's... And that's about (laughs) the heart. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) that's that's about the heart softening so thinking about something that it doesn't have to be in front of you we have an Mm. imagination so we can think about anything that creates a slight sense of kind of softening and that's all Mm. part of the regulation process right this is this is so great um so we kind of got a sense of that these so these are a couple of activities that we can do where we can just as i was saying notice what else the body can do and Mm -hmm. and 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 allow ourselves to be able to um do further work i suppose and to 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 notice what else might be going on for us but is there a sense of also being able to kind of are there any like tips about where or, or or kind of ideas about where trauma might sit in the body like are there kind of particular things we might want to look out for that Mm. might be clues to yeah that we're in react mode or or 
or um, yeah, experiencing some CPTSD perhaps. Mm-hmm. So first of all, being aware that any unpleasant sensation in the body could potentially be linked to a trauma response. And as we're all different, that could, you know, look in lots of different ways. It could potentially be different things. So anything from feeling numb in the body, feeling numb emotionally as well, feeling really cold, um, struggling to notice parts of the body. Again, that could be part of that disassociative response. Um, If you have any injuries that could be, you know, connected to trauma um, or it could be uh, that the injury took place because there was already some predisposition because of trauma. Being aware of the posture. So if we're, you know, unable to kind of hold an open position with our body, that could also be a sign. Um, If our bodies are trying to complete the trauma response by moving in a particular way that could be quite strange that could be the body naturally trying to figure it out and if that's the case just allowing the body to move but doing it really slowly so that we can reprocess it and be aware of it because trauma kind of quickens all the responses and and trauma work is actually really slow work um it, it could be a general sensitivity to noise that could, you know, signal some activation. Um, And then we also have, you know, medical trauma, so general anaesthetic, um, scar tissue because of operations, restricted movement, um, dental trauma as well that can really affect people. And then we have broader systemic trauma such as oppression, racism, homophobia, sexism, etc. Um, I think it might be quite useful to kind of move on to some of these um, to uh, these political topics because obviously this stuff can be one of the things that one of the the underlying themes of this podcast is that you know many of the um, many of the the tools of um, for example trauma informed work or mindfulness or um, or uh, yoga or well being generally can be used in exceptionally self-improving ways in, in very individualistic, uh, let's say almost neoliberal ways where we are trying mm-hmm. to constantly self-improve ourselves in order to compete more effectively against others in the marketplace that is um, 21st century Western economies. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but there, 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 are, there are a couple of things that we kind of, that that are really useful to reflect on here. It's that it's the thing that I was saying at the beginning, which is that um, that that the that the people's experiences of trauma have not been uh, fairly distributed. Uh, we are not mm-hmm. we are not all on the same level playing field when it comes to our experiences of stress and and trauma and where this sits in the body. But also, there is the potential for this to have um, for there to be a uh, for for this to be utilized in ways which are beneficial collectively and and also politi- politically but mm-hmm. but something i was noticing just during uh, particularly during the protest um after the killing of george floyd i noticed uh, a few folk um like black therapists in america talking about um you know some of the things that you were just talking about and actually giving advice um if you're if you're on a protest, if you're being har- uh, or if you're being harassed by a, a member of the police, or if just just to notice some of these things that might be going on for you, is that and so 
it's clear that you know that for many black people, people of mm-hmm. color, being in public even yeah. um, isn't as isn't as safe as it is for for most white people or many white people. Mm-hmm. So this is like an important thing to to talk about politically, isn't it? You know, doing yeah. this kind of work. Um, yeah. yeah definitely and you know when we think about oppression we we need to frame it as chronic trauma Mm. and that experience of having that kind of undercurrent of lack of safety that's happening all the time but is particularly heightened in public spaces and that can have a really disembodying effect because if the body isn't a safe place then actually psychologically it makes sense to survive to really leave the body Mm. and to then you know kind of try to project out which creates even more lack of safety and um, is you know there's a higher risk as well in doing that and somatic practices help us come home to ourselves and they also maybe help us grieve the experiences that you know the systemic and interpersonal experiences of oppression so it's important to do that from a perspective of the body because you know sure you can think about it but actually it needs to be more holistic. So, you know, processing racism can't just be thinking that it's bad or grieving it from a cognitive space. Hmm. Yeah, and this is not to say, uh, this is, I'm not saying for a, for a moment that um, it's, it's about telling people not to be angry, mm-hmm. uh, but it's about, it is about the ability to remain safe in, and and to and I, I like that idea of just being with our body and not as not um, not escaping from our body and just being able to to, to notice what's going on for us um, and noticing where the yeah. anger is in the body as well yeah so that it's not just like you know in the mind locating it in multiple places there's more power doing that and I guess there is this difference between anger and and the trauma response of fight, right? Isn't there? You mm-hmm. know, anger can be a a, a a a constantly burning thing that might give us energy. It's it, it's the injustice emotion. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the thing that makes us, you know, if we're passionate about something, if we're passionate about um, equality and inclusion mm-hmm. and uh, and then and, and rights and justice, then that's the that's the thing that keeps us going. But that's very different to the fight response when where after being triggered by something or if the body's under threat isn't it yeah definitely and i mean anger in itself has been politicized the trope of Mm. the angry black woman is Mm. something that i hear a lot in my practice working with many black women who say that actually they're struggling to feel angry because any response that could include some anger is instantly labeled as negative and unacceptable and then stereotyped so that really denies the lived experience of, you know, the freedom to be angry and to process that anger so that you can stop being angry. Yeah. And this is something that we're also seeing with the Sarah Everard protests mm. and the subsequent Kill the Bill protests. Yeah. Um, and the fantastic work of Sisters Uncut. Uh, and I would encourage everyone listening to uh, become, to donate to Sisters Uncut because uh, they do really excellent work. Um but um, we, we kind of saw that, didn't we, that where a vigil just after mm. the murder where everyone in at the vigil were feeling their feelings, but then the, it was... Uh, the There were flashpoints where the police were creating an environment where people mm-hmm. were not able to regulate their feelings and emotions, and, and that was in itself 
the trigger uh, yeah. for for subsequent protests. It's I, mean, I don't want to psychologize that police obviously like uh, um, the, the 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 police have that as part of their job is to is to do that work and and uh, but but they weren't even out of even at a vigil they weren't mm-hmm. able to kind of create the space where people could collectively feel those kinds of feelings together and to and to and to to experience that kind of solidarity with each other yeah definitely and the role of the police the role of um you know police brutality and and police violence and and dynamics that are connected to the criminal justice system have markers of oppression where people haven't been allowed to acknowledge how they're feeling for various reasons and that underlying tension is felt often at a community level so it's in the body of the community not just in the body of the individual and when we're working with the body we're actually working with multiple bodies there's a kind of collective body that that we can tap into there's an ancestral body so you know things like relationships with the police can be you know that those dynamics can be inherited as well yeah that's so interesting isn't it because there's clearly like an assemblage going on it is that uh you know, for a client you might be working with in a therapy room, they go home, whoever they live with, who's, whoever their friends are, their close family network, they might also be experiencing mm-hmm. uh, trauma, yeah. they might be in react mode, that might also be re-traumatizing. And I guess also it's yeah. about resourcing people within communities to be able to do this work with each other and to be able to recognize it for each other rather than to be, to constantly be, to, for the assemblage to be in constant react mode must be extremely traumatizing and re-traumatizing in and of itself yeah absolutely and and for me that's the role of a therapist is you know not just someone who does work in with an individual in a therapy room but actually going into communities and teaching these skills doing the psychoeducation, supporting communities to build their resilience and to you know do peer-to-peer support because therapy is expensive you know not everyone can afford private therapy um, so it's really important to kind of create spaces where knowledge can be shared and with knowledge there's trauma processing there's the political aspect of liberation as well and and there's a general feeling of safety less violence and a better way of coping with the adversities of life and you know conflict as well yeah and 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 as you were saying also that this is about this is about history as well isn't it and and it passes through generations Mm. so you know uh, it wasn't just since the murder of George Floyd that yeah. black folk in in the in the UK or the US have been uh, ha- have experienced vi- police violence. You know, it's 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 been happening for not only police violence but also um, neglect from the state and mm-hmm. and, and state sanctioned racism too. That's not it's, that's something that's been passed down, hasn't it? Yeah, and you know, it's been passed down in the body. Mm. So you know, the trauma that we're working with in the present could date back generations. And also the distrust as well, feeling like it's it's just not possible to trust the state, the police, to, you know, maybe be in a space where if there's an issue, it wouldn't be brought through the criminal justice system. It would be dealt with in community because of that lack, lack of trust. So that's really eroded um, the relationship between communities and the state and you know racism and, and other isms and phobias are unfortunately a part of the day-to-day reality of many people and many communities yeah um, and more broadly as well this could be this this could refer to 
uh, any identity which has experienced uh, uh, generations of systemic oppression. I know that this yeah. is certainly something which um, folk from the Jewish community kind of experience, yeah. that, you know, that is certainly intergenerational trauma that's been mm-hmm. passed down. But also, of course, as you alluded to earlier, people's experiences of transphobia, homophobia, biphobia, mm-hmm. being out and lesbophobia, being out and about in public, that also has the possibility to be incredibly uh, traumatizing doesn't it yeah definitely and this can be traumatizing when you're out but also when you're in your community so for example if you have a particular faith and you are lgbtq plus or gender diverse and and you want to practice your faith it can be a complicated painful process you know not all faith communities accept um you know people from minority identities so it's Mm. it's really sad that actually you know trauma can be in your own community too as well as walking down the street Mm. and i suppose the the thing with trauma is that because it doesn't kind of because people often don't recognize it or notice it or even really understand it they might just kind of think that this is just who i am you know Mm. this is or that we might kind of make accommodations for someone acting out or we might make accommodations for somebody being rude and abrupt or make make accommodations for people uh, walking out of the room or not wanting to to deal with something and actually where we where in these communities where this knowledge and, and and skills of being able to notice this to me actually might look like a trauma response and mm-hmm. to be able to invite people to do this work for themselves is really potentially really important isn't it yeah yeah definitely to empower people to notice their own trauma responses and caretake themselves as much as they need to as much as they can given Mm. the systemic reality um but really you know doing that self-care in in a trauma aware way and the beautiful thing about trauma work is that there's that possibility of really uncovering who we really are that aliveness that playfulness that curiosity that is still in there but it's been buried by layers and layers of pain um and supporting people to go on that journey whether it's you know by themselves trying to you know do what they can to regulate themselves you know if they can to engage with a practitioner um but ultimately to not feel ashamed because the the biggest theme that comes up with trauma is shame that people really don't understand why they're behaving in a particular way and they're embarrassed about it you know they think if something traumatic happened 10 years ago that they should be over it by now hmm. and or i guess it might also harm people too right you know if uh, if if people get into if people are in a response where that trauma response is 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 fight mm-hmm. um then un, unchecked they may be that might be something which might be hurting other people in their lives too i suppose yeah definitely so it's having that knowledge to work through these trauma responses in a safe way so obviously you know if you feel that urge not harming somebody but there are lots of ways to work through it in a really mindful and gentle way that don't involve anyone else being harmed I think over the last few years I've been hearing the expression trauma-informed uh, mm-hmm. quite a lot more, uh, which I think is really great. And I have been hearing it from um, from uh, people like healthcare providers and, and trainers and stuff. The work of doing um, trauma work does take a long period of time, though, doesn't it? And ultimately, I think a lot of the time when, you know, even if someone is, is trauma-informed, someone working 
in a healthcare service might not have the time to do that yeah. kind of work and also they might also be experiencing trauma for themselves um so it is about this thing of how can we how can we learn learn this and 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 take it away with us and and, and teach everyone else this kind of peer approach i suppose yeah there's there's the peer approach and and also knowing the difference between being trauma informed so having a sense of what we mean by trauma and actually specializing in working with trauma which is right. a completely different skill set and and it does take time to be um to be a trauma specialist and and to really you know work with trauma therapeutically in that way um so knowing when you need to refer if you maybe see a client for short-term therapy in the NHS, 12 sessions, that's not the best place to open up trauma explorations. So there's only so much that you can do in that time. So some stabilization and then referral might be the best thing to do. Because what you don't want to do is open it up in short-term therapy and then it's really uncontained you you know the client comes out of that process feeling um you know feeling really vulnerable and not having a safe place to continue processing that yeah 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 that's that, i think that's really important i mean there are the the whole topic of um therapy waiting lists and mental health on the nhs is probably something that is a whole other podcast um but that kind of referral for the 12 week often cvt uh, mm. on the nhs sometimes there are other forms of therapy available but that often comes after a long waiting list uh, and so yeah. and there's that sense of well this is my one shot and so mm. yeah we're, it's it's just i don't know what more to say about that mm. than it's not enough and uh, it uh, is it's you, true and and it is so complicated as well and and also while cbt has lots of useful tools the most important thing is to really build trust if you're doing trauma work because yeah. you can't do it without trust and that takes time as well of course and that must also be that must also also be something really important for the somatic experiencing therapist as well mm. like it must be quite perhaps it's quite challenging for you to from your perspective for someone to be to be bringing their their body their traumatized body into into the therapy space that might be quite a lot for you to hold I suppose as well yeah definitely I mean I I do the work myself so if I'm leading an orientation I would orientate myself along with the client. If I'm grounding, I'm also doing it along with them. And the more I can regulate my nervous system, the more I can help them co-regulate with me. So it's actually really important for me as a practitioner to stay in a place where I'm you know, aware of what's happening for me, able to settle myself, able to then do my self-care after the session. You know, That's all part of trauma work. It's what you do to prepare. It's the during and it's the after as well. But it, you know, it can be draining as well because when I work with people, I'm not just working with that particular situation, but also all the other situations that might have been upsetting or negative or oppressive. And also usually their experiences with other practitioners as well. So that fear that could be because, you know, maybe they had some therapy and it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of inheriting a lot when I work with an individual and having to work with that inheritance as well. Yeah, and people's experiences of healthcare for many reasons might yeah. not be might might have been traumatizing in and of itself. Um, 
I know that even um, when I'm training teachers in uh, or, or anyone around sex education, one of the first things I do is to ask them to reflect on their own sex education. And over the years, I've come to realize that actually a lot of what people are telling me is that they found that traumatizing. Um, mm. And that, you know, I used to kind of think that it was... Um, that it was just kind of a, a way to introduce a course and a way to get people thinking about where their baseline is, which it still is. But often people are saying, yeah, I was traumatized when they showed me all these horrendous things or was, you know, showing yeah. this horrendous video. And it's like, and actually that's real. And, and, mm-hmm. and you can see that you can see the, the, the weight come off the chest when they, when they're able to unburden that almost. It's, I think when we start to really, I guess, when we're being trauma informed rather than um, being skilled at doing trauma work, you start to kind of see it everywhere. Like yeah. you, we start to, um, I think this is one of the possibilities of, uh, I guess, like the final question is, is to think about how the possibilities of this uh, for solidarity. I was just wondering whether just to be for people to for everyone to be able to reflect on what feeling what feeling in react mode might feel like and the, and and just being able to do this grounding work you mentioned before when when we did the breathing exercise before and you talked about imagining your feet on the ground and going and, mm-hmm. and come turning into roots you know what if those roots are able to then go into the ground and deeply connect with everyone else's roots and to and yeah. to wind and twist around everyone else's roots and that and that actually we do all have a sympathetic nervous system. And so we mm-hmm. know what it might feel like, you know, if we, if we know what it might feel like to feel stressed, imagine what yeah. it might be like to feel like that pretty much all the time. And I wonder whether there, there is a possibility here from taking us from being trauma informed and using that in, 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 ways, in ways that are solidaristic and, and about community and how we might all kind of be communally informed about this too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's something really important here around embodied activism. The more we can regulate our nervous system, the less harmful we're going to be to, you know, the environment, to other people, to especially, you know, to marginalised identities. So if we can regulate, we'll probably be better lovers, partners, you know, um, family members and community members so it does ripple out and this is the really exciting thing about working with the body when you start to sense that the work that you're doing is systemic as well you know and and the excitement of actually working in the moment and sensing it rippling into communities that you know really need this right so that is really potentially transformative to be able to do the opposite of um, yeah traumatized communities and to bring in some of these some of these somatic practices in yeah in this really broader way and if we can um speak from that secure place or you know feel as secure as possible when we're engaging in conversation and notice when we're getting triggered we're more likely to be able to navigate things like racism sexism conversations that might be very challenging that might be full of conflict Um, If we're approaching it from a body-based perspective, we have a chance of resolving the ruptures, hopefully. Yeah. Um, And I'm bringing in, I I guess that's the thing to do with um, how also we build trust as well, isn't it? Is that, you know, the ability to, to, to say when we're triggered and to be able to have the space to, because our body often, I think, um, 
I guess when those of us who are very kind of like politically or culturally minded kind of think that everything is to do with discourse and everything is to do with um, uh, society and capitalism and stuff. But but we do also have to focus on, you know, the sympathetic nervous system does this thing and often it lasts for a particular period of time and these, mm-hmm. are, the, these are the effects it might have. And sometimes we might just have to wait 20, 30 minutes for us to just calm down enough for us to be able to have a conversation or to go back and challenge someone or to say, I found this hurtful or this caused some harm or you know that's even that is a really important little piece of information isn't it that the body just has to do what the body does sometimes yeah and allowing the body the time that it needs to work itself out before you then add another layer that needs to be processed so you know with conflict moving away from this kind of pressure to resolve it in a day or to resolve it in in that moment and actually understanding that both people might need to settle their nervous systems. Both people might need to feel resourced before they approach the conversation again. And speaking of politics, there's also, you know, the politics of pleasure and what right. that means and how pleasure can really fill us up and, and charge us in a really positive way to have the energy to deal with trauma, to deal with conflict, to deal with isms. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, as whenever we talk about um like sexual pleasure for example but any kind of pleasure it's about having it's about creating the 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 right i guess for want of a better term the right vibe (laughs) that Mm -hmm. it's not it's not so much the thing you do it's creating the vibe in which the pleasurable things can happen and what is the vibe where the pleasurable things can happen the vibe is where our parasympathetic nervous system is available to us mm-hmm. and we're not going to be in reactive mode and it's that, that possibility of bringing us together and so that can happen between people having sex between people sharing a meal together but it can also mm-hmm. happen in protest in uh in in community spaces it, it, when dancing yeah definitely so it's about being more available to pleasure from a community perspective as well and and naming it and celebrating that because if we're constantly in the place of you know trauma and pain there's no opportunity to kind of cyclically come out and digest and and rest right wow this is really interesting uh stuff um kim uh please tell the listener uh where they might find you anything you'd like to plug yeah, sure. Um, so you can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Black Psychotherapy and hopefully we'll have our website up and running soon. But for now, yeah, IG is our only space. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's people's only, the only space that people need. You know, people yeah. like the nice pictures and things, don't they? Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, I found this such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks so much I, for I just having got, me. Like, my head's filled with uh, potential of other podcasts and other conversations and <laughs> other, other things to do. But um, uh, Kim, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And if you've enjoyed this show, please consider supporting the Patreon. From just £1 a month, you'd be supporting me and paying me, crucially, to make this show and also paying freelance guests to come on the show. Uh, So that's patreon.com forward slash 
culture, sex, relationships. You get the episodes usually a week earlier. There are some um, a few bits and bobs of extras that I put in there too. Sometimes I do extended episodes. Also, you can have access to our Discord server where you can chat to other folk if you want to about the episodes. Uh, so that is patreon.com forward slash culture, sex, relationships. If you like this podcast and you want it to be in the world, we have to fund it and you... I fund other podcasts. I I also I am a patron of other podcasts that I really like that only can only survive through Patreon funding. So please, from just a pound a month, consider supporting my Patreon. Thank you. Don't make me ask again. Bye.